Welcome back, everyone, to Freud in Focus with Tom DeRose and Jamie Ruers, a Freud Museum podcast produced by Carolina Heller. Thank you once again for all the lovely feedback, and we have some great questions come through this week. They follow on from our previous episode on speculation and the compulsion to repeat. So what we'll do is we'll integrate some of those questions into our discussion today. The focus of this episode will be the new dual instinct theory and the appearance of the death drive in Freud's Beyond the Pleasure Principle, and we'll really be looking at the latter part of the text. Before we dive into the text itself, I would just like to paraphrase a question that we received after our last episode. You'd mentioned the methodological tension in Freud's work between evidence that comes from clinical experience and is then adapted and speculation. Isn't there another method that is crucial for the data of psychoanalysis? That of observations from everyday life, so non-clinical data, as the subject matter of the first books of psychoanalysis would suggest. Well, uh, it's an excellent point, actually, and I think it's certainly clear that observations from everyday life are fundamental for the practice and theory of psychoanalysis. As the question mentions, the subject matter of the kind of foundational books of psychoanalysis are dreams, jokes, and that those psychopathologies of everyday life, like slips of the pen and the forgetting of names, etc., Indeed, in his 1926 text, The Question of Lay Analysis, Freud puts forward the argument that psychoanalysis has a value independent of its application to medicine. I suppose any attempt to set up a binary opposition for the sake of argumentation will always lead to something being excluded or left out of the scope of the argument. It would have been just as effective to have set up a binary opposition between clinical and non-clinical evidence as between clinical and speculative argumentation. When we move into part six of this text, we see Freud acting almost like a magpie, drawing evidence from a range of seemingly disparate sources. But certainly the data gathered from everyday life remain central to the psychoanalytic endeavour. We ended our previous episode by looking at the final paragraph of part five and Freud's first mention of Eros. Freud then took a break from writing Beyond the Pleasure Principle and wrote The Uncanny. So we're now starting part six, which is twice as long as the other chapters. It's a very dense and unwieldy moment in the text. Freud looks at the compulsion to repeat from different perspectives, and he also addresses the opposition of the new life and death instincts. Firstly, he suggests that we need to consult the field of biology to see if it can contradict the notion of a death instinct. How does he elaborate this argument, Tom? Well, uh, chapter six is, is quite startling, I think, in many respects. 
As you mentioned, it, it's almost twice as long as any other chapter in the text. It is, as you say, unwieldy and dense, even irascible, if you can say that about a piece of writing. In Freud and the Non-European, Edward Said compared Freud's late work, Moses and Monotheism, to some of Beethoven's final compositions. They shared the same late style, which produced an alienating effect on the listener or reader, and ignored the desire for closure. They are contrapuntal, made up of different independent voices, which resist resolution. Although Beyond the Pleasure Principle is very much a middle text of Freud's, as far as its structure goes, it does display certain elements of the late style. If we can think of part six of this text as a particularly exemplary of a contrapuntal structure, the first voice that we encounter here is that of biology. We'll remember that in the previous episode, Freud had suggested that organisms die for internal reasons. Well, now he will look to test this notion of a natural death. Freud uses as evidence a number of biological experiments, both on multicellular organisms and on single-cell organisms, or protozoa. Experiments of Weismann on multicellular organisms had suggested the fact that they were divided into a mortal element, the soma, or body, and an immortal element, the germ cells. This seemed to harmonise with Freud's own classification of the two types of instinct that operate in living matter, the death drive and eros. Experiments on single-cell organisms or protozoa suggested that, unless the fluid that surrounds them is regularly infused with nutrients, the fact that they are surrounded in the products of their own metabolism, or their waste products, would lead to fatal results. They would then seem to die a natural death. Our first voice then, that of biology, is left unresolved. Biology is unable to disprove the existence of the death drive. Freud goes on now to talk about the history of instinct theory in psychoanalysis and whether there might be an intimation of the existence of the death drive here. There's also a reference to the work of Sabina Spielrein, who was the subject of a question that was sent in to us. Tom, what does Freud discover by looking back at the development of the theory of the instincts in psychoanalysis? And what do you make of the reference to Spielrein here? Well, now we come to our second voice in part six. We began with biology, and now we come to something much closer to home for Freud. How theories of the instincts have developed in psychoanalytic discourse. Now, throughout this passage, Freud is keen to stress the fact that his theory of the instincts is and always has been, essentially dualistic, in contrast to Jung, 
who formulated a monistic instinct theory. Initially, this dualism was represented by the sexual instincts on the one hand and the ego instincts on the other. But after the discovery of the concept of narcissism in 1914, and the subsequent idea that the ego could also be numbered among the objects of the libido, this original distinction could no longer be upheld. Under the new designation Eros, Freud assembles both the original sexual instincts that seek to combine separate entities into new unities, and the self-preservative ego instinct that seeks to combine the separate cells in an organism and maintain the unity of the individual. Eros then operates on a cellular level for the preservation of the individual and also drives us to reproduce in order to propagate the species. How then does Freud uphold his dualism in the face of this revision? Put differently, where can we observe the effects of the death drive when all we seem to be presented with is the manifestations of Eros? Freud begins this search by suggesting that there might be a correspondence between the polarity of eros and death instincts and that of love or affection and hate or aggressiveness. In following this idea through, he focuses on the concept of sadism, which had originally been associated with the sexual instincts and was capable of making itself independent thus dominating the individual's sexual activity. But if the aim of the sadistic instinct is to injure the object, how can this instinct fit under the umbrella of Eros, which seeks to preserve life? Freud describes how, in his earlier conception, masochism which is seen as the complement to sadism, was viewed as sadism that has been turned round onto the subject's ego. Perhaps, he suggests, there may be such a thing as a primary masochism, and that this turning around of the sadistic instinct onto the subject might be a regression to an earlier phase of the instinct's history. Thus Freud suggests a way out of the cul-de-sac of monism, and he will explore the implications of these remarks in his 1924 paper on the economic problem of masochism. As you mentioned earlier, Jamie, this is also the point at, at which he refers to the work of Sabina Spielrein and her paper Destruction as the Cause of Coming into Being, published in 1912, the subject of which Freud suggests is not entirely clear to him. It's clear that Freud was troubled by Spielrein's paper, which, when he first heard it, seemed to throw his libido theory into question. Perhaps we could say that under the experience of war and pandemic, 
these ideas began to repeat on him. Much in the same way as a traumatic experience does by the process of deferred action, the meaning and affective charge of which only becomes apparent at a later stage when the subject is in a more developed position. Spielrein's paper was clearly prescient and her work has rightly been rescued from the margins of psychoanalytic theory with some excellent recent scholarship. Up until now, he's been focused on the death instinct and the compulsion to repeat. But how does Eros display this compulsion to repeat? How is it conservative in nature? Freud suggests that science has little to tell us about the origin of sexuality, a problem which he compares to a darkness in which not so much as a ray of a hypothesis has penetrated. Freud does, however, find evidence that Eros is connected to a need to restore an earlier state of things. He does not discover this in the field of science, but in a myth. I'm going to read from the Standard Edition, Volume 18 now, and if you'd like to follow at home, it's from page 57. What I have in mind is, of course, the theory which Plato put into the mouth of Aristophanes in the Symposium, and which deals not only with the origin of the sexual instinct, but also with the most important of its variations in relation to its object. The original human nature was not like the present, but different. In the first place, the sexes were originally three in number, not two as they are now. There was man, woman, and the union of the two. Everything about these primeval men was double. They had four hands and four feet, two faces, two privy parts, and so on. Eventually, Zeus decided to cut these men in two, like a sorb apple which is halved for pickling. After the division has been made, the two parts of man, each desiring his other half, came together and threw their arms about one another, eager to grow into one. Tom, can you tell us a little about Freud's manoeuvre here and why is he introducing Plato? What's he up to? Well, welcome to our third voice. Um, this, this is quite a charming reference, isn't it? And, um, and it's introduced, I think, due to the inability of science to provide Freud with the answers that he requires. We mentioned earlier the fact that everyday life was one of the original sources of data for the psychoanalyst. But here we have Freud drawing on ancient Greek philosophy to help substantiate his argument. I find this move reminiscent of the use of the passage from Virgil's Aeneid for the epigraph of his interpretation of dreams, which roughly translates as, 
If I cannot bend the heavenly powers, I will move the infernal regions. Transposed to our current text, we might read it in this way. If I can't get the answers from science, I'll spread my net wider and indeed deeper. One of the things that makes Freud's writing so enduringly relevant and fascinating is the breadth of his sources, the range of his interests. He often refers to the notion that writers such as Goethe and Shakespeare have a certain facility for uncovering psychological truths, which the psychoanalyst must arrive at through laborious and mundane procedures. Think of the opposition between Icarus and the Mole that we outlined in the previous discussion. Although there's clearly an element of simplification here, as we know, Freud's writings are also illuminated by sparks of inspiration. He does continually seem to be suspicious of this tendency of his, and is much more insistent that we should recognise the properly scientific elements in his work. Personally, I find it very interesting that just a year after the publication of Beyond the Pleasure Principle, he writes a paper entitled Psychoanalysis and Telepathy, the first line of which reads, We are not destined, so it seems, to devote ourselves quietly to the extension of our science, and in which he will undertake to analyse the unavoidable field of occult phenomena. Is this a repetition of the original move indicated in the epigraph of the interpretation of dreams, to call on the infernal regions which the, when the higher powers are found wanting? Just a final, a final point on the passage that Freud quotes from the symposium here. In Plato's dialogue, the speech of Aristophanes that Freud is referring to acts as a comic interlude in a discussion of the meaning of Eros, a position that is later superseded by Socrates's recounting of Diotima's speech. And thus, beautifully recounted as it is, the speech is ultimately dismissed by Plato. So we have an, another example here of a false start, another unresolved voice, Perhaps half aware of the fact that he may have overstretched himself here, Freud writes that, here, I think, the moment has come for breaking off. Well, let's head back to the text now. Um, I'll be reading this time from page 59, if you'd like to follow along, from the Standard Edition, volume 18. It's not, however, without the addition of a few words of critical reflection. It may be asked whether and how far I am myself convinced of the truth of the hypotheses that have been set out in these pages. My answer would be that I am not convinced myself and that I do not seek to persuade other people to believe in them. Or, more precisely, 
that I do not know how far I believe in them. There is no reason, as it seems to me, why the emotional factor of conviction should enter into this question at all. It is surely possible to throw oneself into a line of thought and to follow it wherever it leads out of simple scientific curiosity, or, if the reader prefers, as an advocatus diaboli, who is not on that account himself sold to the devil. What he's saying here feels like a reevaluation of the speculative tendencies that we discussed in the previous episode. How can we understand these words of critical reflection? It's, it's quite a remarkable paragraph, this. It's the beginning of an extended reflection on the nature of what's gone before. Whereas in a philosophical treatise, we might expect a dialectical resolution here, a bringing together of the previous arguments and the creation of a higher unity which would incorporate all of their apparent contradictions. What Freud offers us is a series of qualifications and half justifications. He's not sure how much he believes these conclusions himself, and he's certainly not in the business of trying to convince other people as to their truth value. We could attempt to unpack the language he's using here and weigh up the uneasy relationship that exists between belief and knowledge in Freud's conception. But one thing seems clear. One can follow an idea through out of scientific curiosity without selling one's soul to the devil. Freud here seems to flirt with an identification with Goethe's Faust, the eponymous hero of one of his most treasured works of literature. But unlike Faust, Freud will not be seduced into selling his soul to Mephistopheles in order to gain ultimate knowledge. To carry this analogy a little further, in Civilization and Its Discontents, Freud would compare the figure of Mephistopheles to the destructive power of the death drive. Whilst the productive force of nature in Goethe's text was for Freud a precursor to the workings of his other great instinct, Eros. So in the end of part six, Freud declines the offer to enter into the Faustian pact and resists the temptation of resolution by keeping his contrapuntal structure intact. We've almost come to the end of our journey, waded through the intricacies of part six. And in part seven, we return to the original question, which many of us might have forgotten. Is there something beyond the pleasure principle. Tom, perhaps you could let us know how Freud ties things up and leave us with a few final thoughts. Well, well it's been a long and, and winding road, hasn't it? And we've encountered many false starts and detours. But Freud leaves us with another return, a second return, in fact, 
to the project for a scientific psychology, which we've come across previously. If the pleasure principle can be regarded as a tendency, it operates, Freud suggests, at the service of a function, and that function is to keep the amount of excitation within the mental apparatus constant or as low as possible. The purpose then of the compulsion to repeat traumatic events and memories would be an attempt to bind instinctual energy and therefore it would act as a preliminary function. It would attempt to prepare this free-floating excitation for its final elimination in the pleasure of discharge. So then, is there something beyond the pleasure principle after all? Will there be a eureka moment that draws the text to a close? Well, the answer to this question, in a typically Freudian fashion, is yes and no. Freud writes, Another striking fact is that the life instincts have so much more contact with our internal perceptions, emerging as breakers of the peace and constantly producing tensions whose release is felt as pleasure, while the death instincts seem to do their work unobtrusively. The pleasure principle seems actually to serve the death instincts. A half answer then perhaps, or perhaps rather than a half answer, a more nuanced and subtle question. The death drive then acts in silence amid the clamour of Eros, and over the second half of his career, Freud will devote a great deal of effort to the task of giving voice to this silence, in helping to uncover the variously unobtrusive yet devastating manifestations of the death drive. In summing up, Freud quotes the following lines from Heine. What we cannot reach flying, we must reach limping. The book tells us that it is no sin to limp. The flight of Icarus has come to an end. Now the work of the mole will begin. Fantastic. I can't believe we've completed a summary of Beyond the Pleasure Principle in just three episodes. <laughs> a seemingly impossible task, Tom. How are you feeling? Well, well, my brain hurts a bit. <laughs> but, um, I'm also aware that, that there is so much in this text that we can only really ever come to a partial understanding of it. I mean... Beyond the Pleasure Principle is almost exemplary, I think, of the process of reading. We have the eros of understanding on the one hand, which is continually being challenged by the death drive of confusion on the other. In The Economic Problem of Masochism, Freud would write that the two drives never present themselves separately, that they're always fused together. And I think that the activity of the drives can be seen almost as a reading effect of Beyond the Pleasure Principle. Any understanding will always be fused together with confusion. Any fixed position will always be in the process of being shifted. 
any synthesis will always be about to be unravelled, and all the better for it. We're left in the end, not with answers, but with more interesting questions. Tom, thank you so much for taking one of the most complicated and controversial texts by Sigmund Freud and making it as palatable as you have. Thanks to those of you at home as well for your great questions and for joining Tom DeRose and me, Jamie Ruers, on this brief journey beyond the pleasure principle. I'd also like to extend a thanks to our wonderful producer, Carolina Heller. I'll be returning on the 31st of March with the Freud Museum curator, Bryony Davies, to talk about the museum's forthcoming exhibition, 1920-2020, Freud and Pandemic. The exhibition will address some of the key themes in Beyond the Pleasure Principle in the context of the 1920 Spanish flu pandemic, as well as the COVID-19 response today. We'll see you then.